I was sitting in a dentist's office and looked at an article that said, how do lobsters grow? Well, I don't care how lobsters grow. But I was interested in it. And it points out that a lobster is a soft, mushy animal that lives inside of a rigid shell. That rigid shell does not expand. Well, how can the lobster grow? Well, as the lobster grows, that shell becomes very confining. Right? And the, kind of the lobster feels itself under pressure and uncomfortable. It goes under a rock formation to protect itself from predatory fish, casts off the shell, and produces a new one. Well, eventually, that shell becomes very uncomfortable as it grows, right? Back under the rocks. Good. And the lobster repeats this numerous times. The stimulus for the lobster to be able to grow is that it feels uncomfortable. Right? Now, if lobsters had doctors, they would never grow. Because as soon as the lobster feels uncomfortable, goes to the doctor, gets a Valium, gets a Percocet, feels fine. Never gets off its shell. So I think that we have to realize is that we have to realize that times of stress are also times that are signals for growth. And if we use adversity properly, we can grow through adversity. The title of today's message is Lead Me to the Rock. And we're going to be in Psalm 61, starting in verse 1. You can turn there in your Bibles or flip over your bulletin, and it's on the back of your bulletin also. And today I want to begin just a small series of messages about being hidden in God and what that means and, and how that uh, works in our lives here in the 21st century. And we begin today with studying Psalm 61. A little bit of background on this psalm. And it kind of shows us that why we read the Bible chronologically every year, because it puts all of this into perspective for us. This is a psalm that was written by King David of Israel. David had many, many children, after, particularly after he became king, from many wives, and obviously this was going to cause some friction within the home. His firstborn son was named Amnon, and Amnon fell in love with his half-sister, Tamar, same father, different mother. And instead of pursuing a, what would be a normal relationship with her, which may have been blessed by David, even if it was against the law of Moses, Amnon tricked Tamar into his bedroom by faking an illness, and he forced himself upon her. After this horrible act was completed, he felt disgusted and threw her out of the house, wanting nothing to do with her. Her full brother Absalom, David's thirdborn son, found her. Her clothes are torn. She's weep, laying in the, in the dirt, throwing sand upon herself, weeping and crying hysterically over what her half-brother had done to her. Absalom nor David does anything initially, but Absalom is carrying a grudge. And he waits for two years, plotting how he's going to do it, until the time comes where he can kill Amnon, which he, he does after Amnon gets drunk. Absalom then fears what the king's going to do to him when he finds out that he killed the firstborn son, and he flees to his grandma's house, or grandfather's house, for three years. David eventually relents upon his judgment and he sends word that he has pardoned Absalom for his sin and tells him to return home. Absalom, however, repays the king's forgiveness by leading a rebellion against David, causing David and most of his household to run for their lives and into the desert where he ends up in a stronghold, which is a series of caves where he can hide from your enemies. David knew this from his time of running from Saul, where all the strongholds were, and he is now in one of these caves. Now consider all of what's happening to David at this point. 
Put yourself in his shoes as he is now alone and has to face what has happened on his watch as king and his watch as father over this family. Think about how he is feeling. Your firstborn son and heir to the throne is a rapist and is now dead. Killed by the same son that is now trying to kill you. The same son that law and justice demanded that you put him to death for his crimes. And yet you showed mercy and pardoned him and look at how he's repaying you. And because of your weakness and laziness of how you ran your kingdom, all of your officials and most of your army have now turned your, their backs on you. They've gone and they've followed Absalom. Even all your people, your loyal subjects who have loved you and supported your whole reign have turned and turned their backs on you, rebelled, and have stalled Absalom as king. And as a result, the kingdom of God that you fought so hard to get has been ripped away from you. And now you're in a cave. One day you've gone from living in the highest luxury and being the most powerful man in the known world at that time to being shivering, laying in a cave with barely a blanket to keep you warm. This is where David is at right now. David is filled with regret. David is being torn apart by sorrow. He's carrying the weight of both of his failures as king and as a father. As an act of worship and contrition, as he's, as he's pouring his heart out to God, he writes this powerful psalm to show us how to react when our worlds fall apart and when we are feeling overwhelmed. I'm going to read this from the King James Version today because I believe it captures the beauty and poetry of the Psalms. Psalm 61, verse 1. Hear my cry, O God. Attend unto my prayer. From the ends of the earth will I cry unto thee. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us the words of men who go through many of the same problems we go through. Men who have failed and yet still pour their hearts out before you and show us the way to still walk before you, to have faith in you, and to eventually pick ourselves up in you and live for you, Lord. And I ask, Father, that as we look upon this psalm today, that your word will teach us the, to have the same heart of David so that we can live a life that matters, so we will be known as a man or a woman that lives to be after God's own heart. Father God, we thank you for this, and we ask this in your name. Amen. So today we're going to look at David's words and see how he dealt with this very horrible situation in, their, in his life and feeling completely overwhelmed by his circumstances. And I dare say this might help some of us who might be feeling the same way. Life in the 21st century is all about being overwhelmed, isn't it? We have constant stimulus, whether it comes off of our smartphones or through our TVs or through the internet. We are constantly being bombarded with stimulus, with news, information, and it just leaves us sometimes feeling overwhelmed 
which then leads us to feel exhausted mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. So let's dig into our lesson today and see how we can, can come out from this feeling of being overwhelmed and put aside all the stress that seems to be choking the life out of us during this time. And the first thing this psalm teaches us is to seek solitude. You see that David asks for God to take him away. He says, Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And as Christians, Jesus should be our example, shouldn't he? And what did Jesus do when he felt stressed? We have a story in the Bible that talks about prior to the calling of his disciples, we know that Jesus' closest and best friend and family member was John the Baptist. They were cousins. They grew up as cousins. They probably grew up playing Hebrews and Egyptians, their version of cowboys and Indians. They were most likely traveled together many times to Jerusalem to attend the required feasts that were required of all men in Israel. They would always have to go to Jerusalem once or twice a year to, re, to, to go to these feasts, and they would most likely travel together. They'd stay together and live together until it was time for John to go off into the desert to be prepared by God to be the herald of the coming king, Jesus. But then John is taken prisoner and killed by the evil king, Herod. Now what does Jesus do when that happens? His best friend since childhood has just been killed. So what does Jesus do? Does he preach a message of the kingdom of God suffering violence and the violent taken by force? Did he go and preach that message? Did he pull his disciples aside and tell them about how if the world hates you, they hated me first? Did he do that? Did he call down fire from heaven on Herod's palace and wipe him and his whole evil family from the face of the earth? No. Matthew 14, it says, Jesus withdrew and went alone into the wilderness. He withdrew. He went off to be by himself. And you would say, wait a minute. Jesus went off by himself? He didn't stay and comfort his disciples? I mean, they knew John, too. John, would have been a, a, John was a very highly respected prophet at the time. And yet they had, to be feeling, they had to be feeling just torn apart at the fact that he has now died. And not only died, but been murdered. You mean Jesus didn't stop or stick around to comfort his disciples? No. Jesus didn't proclaim Herod's eventual death as judgment for this and his other atrocities that him and his whole family committed, that culminated with the, the death of John the Baptist. He didn't do that either. Jesus didn't go on CNN to lead a protest to the streets of Jerusalem because of the death of John the Baptist, saying, Baptist lies matter. He didn't do that either. He withdrew. You know, the rabbi said, our natural reaction to being overwhelmed, to, to feeling stress upon our lives, is to do something about it. Maybe we're going to go pop a pill. The doctor prescribed me Xanax, so it's okay, I can pop a pill. Or maybe I'll just go have a drink and relax. Light up a smoke, punch a bag, work out. we got to do something. The Bible's answer, though, is to stop. Be silent and ask God to lead you to the rock that is higher than I. 
Ask for God to take you away with Him. You may need time to process when all, your whole world comes crashing down. You might even need time to grieve. You might even, and this might be offensive to people, even me, that love showing the stiff upper lip to, some, to everybody, you may need even to shed a few tears over this situation. You know, holding it all inside is so destructive to our spirit. And frankly, it's sinful pride because you don't want to look weak in front of other people. And I admit to you, I, I have to confess this morning, I suffer from this sin. It's the way I was raised. Maybe you were raised the same way. You don't show emotion. You don't show fear. You don't show any, any weakness to anybody. I used to always tell a good friend of mine who is a very emotional person and, and, and kind of throws it all out there how he's feeling it, Dude, you need to cowboy up a little bit. Man, be a man. Don't let them see you sweat. You know, you need to show strength and be a man. That's what, how you are supposed to be a man. I almost told his son the same thing on Facebook this morning when I was reading about his status complaining about work. And then I realized while well, I was preaching this morning, I had to repent. I was repeatedly told growing up that a man needs to show strength. You never let people see that you, when you feel weak. You never let people see you when you feel overwhelmed or even sad. Never let the world see you sweat. But that's pride. That's saying, I don't need you, God. I can handle this on my own. That false bravado that we try to show when we are overwhelmed is like taking balsa wood. You know what balsa wood is? That really flexible, thin wood that you can pretty much poke your finger through. It's like taking balsa wood and shaping it into a circle, painting it metallic gray so it looks like metal, and then carrying it as a shield to show everybody how strong you are. But in reality, anybody could walk up to that shield and just poke their finger right through it. It's a projection of false strength. Jesus, on the other hand, says, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's why we need to get alone with God. And that's why we need to practice the next point, And that is to hide yourself in God. This has to be a purposeful thing. He said, lead me to the rock. You need to hide under that rock that is God. In the video we watched that's describing how lobsters grow, they crawl under the rock to be protected from the predators, shed that outer shell, and grow a bigger one, and then emerge to live their lives. And until it's time to grow again, where they go again under that rock, let a new shell be formed. And then they go and go out to find their way into a trap and end up on my dinner table. That is a lobster's life. But it does give us a valuable lesson. You can't hide yourself with God if you keep your shell on. The funny thing about us having these self-made walls protective walls built up and self-made shells to try to protect us against all this bad stuff in the world is they're always ultimately destructive to our spiritual walk and growth in God. Why are they destructive? Because they're formed in the flesh. They're formed by a desire to want to try to protect ourselves. And that means they are formed from fear, aren't they? They are formed from a sense of fear that we don't want anything to penetrate our walls. We don't want anything to come in and mess with us. So we form them from fear. But the problem is, is that fear is the enemy's tools, not God. 
And therefore, if we are trusting in our own walls, our own shells, our own strength, that's why the enemy has free reign to harm and harass our lives because he's helped build the walls that you're trying to hide behind. He has the keys to get in whenever he wants. Consider that for a moment. Does it make sense now why you struggle with the same situations and the same sin over and over and over again? It's because you're hiding behind a false wall that the enemy built for you. We've allowed our enemy to form your shell. He has those keys. He can open it whenever he wants. He can overcome, climb over, walk through, whatever he has to do to get at you. He doesn't want to work at it when he has already built a way in. That's why we need to let God reform our shells. Our job is to get alone. Our job is to let him lead us to a quiet place to hide you in the rocky fortress of his presence and let him rebuild your shell until it is something that the enemy has no way to get into. And the enemy isn't going to like that. I'll tell you now, you try to get alone with God and you try to let him reform that shell, the enemy's going to kick, he's going to scream, he's going to thrash, he's going to do everything he can to get you out of that quiet place. Because he knows that once God builds that wall, he will have no further access into your life. That is why you need God to lead you to that rock, to hide you in his awesome presence. And then finally realize this fact, that God himself is your shell. Let me ask you this. Do you want to be free from worry? Do you want to be free from anxiety, free from emotional pain? Make God your shell. We have a promise if, we, if you do from Psalm 91 that says if you, make, if you say the Lord is my refuge, if you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra, and you will trample the great lion and the serpent. Why am I so convinced about this teaching about letting God form your walls? Because of verse 13 here. It says, you will tread upon the great lion. What is the devil called in the New Testament by Peter? A roaring lion, isn't he? You're going to tread on him. What is he called in the, New, in the Old Testament? Serpent. You're going to be able to stomp upon the devil's head with impunity if you just make God your shield, your fortress, and the source of all of your strength. So how do we get there? We cry out. Remember, God doesn't like the stiff upper lip that we, we keep trying to put forward to the world. Some people would say, well, well, God says, you know, we need to be bold and courageous. That's why we need to stiff up our lip. That's why I need to show this wall in front of everybody or this facade that I want everybody to see in the world. But when God is telling people to be bold and courageous, he's saying be bold and courageous because of me that lives within you. You say be bold and courageous because I am the one that's giving you the strength. Not be bold and courageous so you get the praise. Get, be bold and courageous so I get the praise. That's what God is saying. We need to release all that self-reliance to him 
And we do that during our time of devotion, during that prayer time, during that specific time when we try to go and get alone with God and spend that time just with Him. We need to use our emotions during this time. You know, God wants to hear our honest feelings about a situation. And you know, God isn't impressed with formal prayers. He really isn't. When you see some of these guys on TV that says, you know, send me $39.99 and I'll send you a prayer that God has to listen to. You're going to twist God's arm and God has to listen to this prayer and he's going he's to bless you. You know, I, it just makes me crazy. God isn't impressed with formal prayers. If you're going through the worst time of your life, your whole day is falling apart, do you go to God and pray something like this? Lord, thou art high above all the earth. I beseech thee to bend thine ear of providence toward thy humble servant, born of the dust, and hear my supplication to thee. Mighty sovereign God, may thy graces overflow upon thy worthless servant, that I may lift my eyes to thee again with worship, and my heart be filled with thy peace and blessings. Does that sound like God wants something God wants to listen to? I mean, I think he fell asleep in the first line myself. Or maybe you should pray helpless. Maybe you should pray honestly and say, God, help! I'm drowning down here. I need you. You know, if you have a seven-year-old child in your care, they're out in the backyard and you're in the house maybe paying bills or something, and you hear in the background, you hear the creak of the swing, you hear laughter, so you know all is okay. And then all the noise stops, and you hear the back door open and the sounds of footsteps running toward you. And the child enters the room with a slightly quivering lip, holding their arm that has a bend in it where it shouldn't, and he says, O lustrous adult, may you pay attention to my plight, and taketh me to the nearest place of healing, so that my pains may be driven from my body, and your child no health again. That's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, don't you expect to hear, Ah, the arm is broken! I mean, that's what you expect to hear. And that's what God expects to, to hear from his children. But sometimes that's what we often do in prayer. We, we have to think that we have to make this, this incredibly um, erudite prayer that God will then hear it. Okay, well, you spoke in King James English, so I guess I have to listen. I mean, that's, that's the way we look at prayer sometimes. God wants to hear your emotion. He wants to hear your honest feelings. He isn't impressed by your slightly quivering lip that tries to hold back that emotion and pain. He wants to know the problem so he can fix it. And that involves acknowledging weakness. And that's a hard thing for us, isn't it? Acknowledging weakness. It's a hard thing for me. You know, many times Christians remind me of a skit by Monty Python. There's an evil knight that is blocking the road and won't let the hero pass. So they pull out their swords and they do battle. The hero manages to cut off the, knight's, the evil knight's sword arm and says, okay, now let me pass. Evil knight picks up the sword with his other arm and said, nope, I'm fine. Blood spurting everywhere. He goes, I'm fine. It's nothing. So the hero cuts off the other arm, blood spurting out of that arm. And he said, okay, now let me pass. And the evil knight says, nope, I'm fine, runs into him. Just keeps bumping into him. So the hero cuts off his legs. And as he's sitting there, there's a stump sitting there on the ground and going, I'm going to bite you. It's just a flesh wound. It's just a flesh wound. That's how most Christians seem to want to, to approach life. Is that you? 
I just ask you this morning, is that you? It's just a flesh wound. And you're, you're bleeding to death all over the place. It's just a flesh wound. Are you the one that if, refuses to admit to God when you feel overwhelmed by a situation? Or perhaps have even suffered some wounds in this battle that we call life and refuse to bring them to God for healing, to humble yourselves and admit that you may feel weak in this situation? Is that you? God wants to hear it. You need to acknowledge your weakness, your pain, and even darkest emotions, even if they are sinful, before God. You need to admit to God when you don't understand. And you need to admit to God that sometimes you might be a little angry with him. He can take it. He's a big God. Because to be honest, he already knows. He already knows. He wants to heal you. But you have to confess. You have to humble yourself and admit that you can't do this on your own. And you need to come to him and say, God, I am just so overwhelmed. I am just, or I'm so tempted. Or I'm so weak in this area. I need you. I need you. We need to seek that solitude. We need to hide ourselves in God. And we need to cry out to him from that hidden, secret place. And when you do that, you will know his strength. You will know his comfort. You will know his peace. And you will know his provision. And God will become your strength, your shield, your shell, your protection, so that you can live a life that honors him and proclaims Jesus Christ to this world. Let's all rise.